this morning. I, um, Pete, I don't know if we have the logo up there for the Mark series, but um, if you can find that. If you can't, no worries. But we're going to be in our second week. This is really the kickoff for the Gospel of Mark series that we're going to be doing over the next few weeks. And this message, the title I have given it is this, Jesus the Preacher. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 1. And remember, part of what we're looking at in this series is the importance of Jesus, his person and his work, okay, or his purpose. That, that we're trying to, like, not just look at the, the teaching of Jesus, but more specifically, who he is. I think all of us would benefit or will benefit by just time of reflecting on the person of Christ himself. I think it's something that we, we kind of do intuitively, but a lot of times it's more, I, I, at least in my own life, I focus on what is he teaching that I need to apply. Instead of just looking at Jesus and saying, this is who I need to follow. And so I think as we come to this first part of the text, one of the things that Mark is really trying to do specifically and intentionally is set out Jesus as that preacher, the one who is proclaiming truth. And so I want us to look, we're going to look at uh, three things this morning. First is the message, what, what Jesus as the preacher says as the message. Then the basis for what he teaches. Um, Will, can you do me a favor? Does it feel like it's really boomy in here? Am I, am I crazy? Tell me, Will, this means yes, this means no, this means I don't, okay, he just gave me that, I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Do y'all feel like it's booming a little bit? Okay, good. Um, so we're going to look at the message, the basis for the message, like why he's saying these things as he's introducing Jesus and what Jesus is basing his message on, and then the implications of what Jesus teaches. So those are going to be the three things that we're looking at. So let's, let me give you a little bit of context to Mark. Uh, chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 14, but if you look back at verses, um, well, basically at verse, uh, verse 12 and 13, and it's interesting because when we look at Mark's gospel, one of the things that he does really well is he gives us these short snapshots of the things that were happening in Jesus' life. If you go to look at the other gospels, typically they, they will describe these things and they really expand on a lot of the details. But part of the, the beauty of what Mark does is he keeps some of these things short. And so it helps us to see and have a little bit of insight into why he's focusing in on certain things as he expands those. So it's a little bit different nuance to this. So in verse 12, for instance, here's what we read. And you may notice my, like my Bible has a little bit of a title before it. It says the temptation of Jesus. And it says in verse 12, the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he, he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. It's like such a short snapshot of what happened in, in the temptation. He doesn't go into all the things that Jesus and Satan talked about in the scripture that was shared and how that temptation worked. It's just that snapshot. And then he begins our text for this morning saying this, now after John was arrested. So, Here's the, the context of what we're going to look at as Jesus, uh, or as Mark talks about Jesus as, uh, as the preacher. Jesus and, and the situation that he's facing is one of struggle and pain. And I think that's a good place for us to just pause for just a moment to recognize that, that we don't ourselves live apart from struggle and pain in our lives. And, and so when we come to this point, I think Mark is saying to us, in the midst of the difficulties of the things that we face, 
Jesus is set apart, and his message is a message of hope despite the struggle, despite the pain. Because we know that the, the temptation, the 40 days, it was a very, very difficult period for Jesus. And then we know also that when John the Baptist was arrested, what does that ultimately lead to? His death. And, and, and not just an easy, like, time, like, sensitive death where it just, like, prolongs. He's beheaded. It's gruesome. And, and in that, John the Baptist is also Jesus' cousin. And so the intimacy of the relationship, it's got to be heartbreaking for Jesus. But in spite of those things, Mark is saying, look, there's the struggle, there's the pain, but Jesus comes in to proclaim the good news. And all of us need to, to look and cling to Jesus, the preacher of the good news. So let's look, at, look back at the text and read um, here what Jesus says, uh, or what Mark says about Jesus. He says, verse 14, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It is a simple message that Jesus was proclaiming. Here's what um, I, I want us to, to note a couple things because I think there's two primary ideas about this gospel that Jesus is presenting. The first is this. The word gospel itself just means good news. That, that Jesus is bringing this idea of something positive uh, that, that is changing the, the whole tenor of the world. It's the good news that there's salvation, that there's hope. Despite the suffering, despite the pain, despite the struggle, Jesus brings good news. So that's the, the first thing is about the word. The second is this. The gospel also leans into this idea of it, the whole narrative of Jesus' life. So you can't have the good news just as this idea of good news apart from Jesus being the, his life, being that which pre presents us the hope and the good news itself. So in a sense, we can look at the gospel, that idea, as it being all about Jesus himself. So what is Jesus proclaiming? He's proclaiming himself. Now here's an interesting little fact. I, I, I like some of these things. You guys know I, I do this kind of research on occasions. But what I looked at is the, the number of times that the word gospel is actually used in the book of Mark. So it's actually used eight times in the book. But what's really interesting is this use by Mark right here is set apart. Because this is the only place that it, it refers to the gospel as the gospel of who? Did you catch that in verse uh, 14? Proclaiming the gospel of God. So there's, there's this aspect that Mark is trying to say, there's lots of things that could provide good news, but this good news is alone, the good news of God himself. And I think that's something that we need to recognize because he's tying in Jesus as the Messiah proclaiming this gospel, but it's a gospel that ties back into, if you remember the comments that I made last week about the tie of Mark from the New Testament and the Old Testament, bringing those things together, this is one of those places. He's uniting the Old Testament here to say, this is the work of God that he's promised to, uh, to bring forth to the people, and it's all centered around Jesus Christ. So I, I started looking at this and um, trying to understand some of the, the uniqueness of the idea of, of Jesus being the one who proclaims. 
And as I was looking at this, I, I was reading and studying, and someone pointed out this text in Isaiah 61. So I want you to turn, maybe throw a, a bookmark or ribbon or something in Mark so you can get back there quick in a minute. But I want you to turn to Isaiah 61. And so what's interesting here about the, the word proclaim is when in the Greek, that, that word is also used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, okay? So that, that uh, helps us see how the Greek Jew, or the, the uh, Hellenized Jews, those that were Jewish but getting influenced by the Greeks, would have gone and read the Old Testament in that Greek language. And so they we're seeing how that translation applies back to the Hebrew. So what's interesting is the same word in the Greek in Mark chapter 1 verse 14 is the same word in Isaiah 61. So we're going to read Isaiah 61 verses 1 through 3. So, so this is such a cool passage. Um, it says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Now I'm going to stop there for just a minute and give you a little bit of um, context here. Because we've been looking at the, the Jesus, the one who proclaims, okay? That first idea of the, the message itself. Now we're going to be getting to look at the basis for what, why Jesus proclaims what he proclaims. Because if we go back and look at the context of Isaiah 60, just for a minute, verse 22. Um, actually, we can go, yeah, let me make sure I get that right. Yes, verse, verse 22. It says, The least one shall become a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. So what's interesting, if you remember this little tool in our English text, the word Lord there in verse 22 is, is in what kind of font? It's all caps, okay? What does that mean? Does anybody remember? It's the proper name of God, which would be the, it's called the tetragrammaton. That just means four letters. It's the, the word Yahweh. So that proper name for God. So when we come to, when we're transitioning from chapter, six, uh, 20, uh, chapter 60, knowing it's the Lord speaking, when we move to 61, what happens? Did you catch this? Let's read it again. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. So the, the speaker changes. And so it's no longer the Lord, the, our Heavenly Father speaking. The, it, it is now the, the servant of the Lord. So let's, let's go on and read this. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to, here's the word, proclaim liberty to the captives. Hey, Pete, are you back there? He's not. Okay. Mason, what was the first song we sang this morning? You can't remember either. I'm going to come over here. Great things. He has done great things. What it, what it did, what it, how does that line up with, what are the lyrics? I, I did a bunch of Jesus stuff. Yeah, you did a bunch of Jesus stuff. I'm trying to cheat and get your iPad open. Are the lyrics up here? You got some kind of passcode. Nope, press home. It's my passcode? I don't remember what it is. Your thumbprint does better. See, there we go. There we go. Okay. So, so, um, see what our Savior done. See how his love overcomes. He has done great things. Um, and it talks about you free every captive and break every chain. Oh, God, you've done great things. We dance in your freedom, awake and alive. You're, uh, and goes on, oh, Jesus, our Savior, your name lifted high. 
Um, let's see if there's anything else. Uh, that's, that's good enough. But, but as we were singing that, I couldn't help but think about Isaiah 61. Because here, what does this messenger say he's going to do? Go back to this. He's going to proclaim liberty to the captives. He, and and he's, it says, the opening of the prison and to those who are bound. He's going to bind up the brokenhearted. It's such a beautiful picture. And we were singing about those very things. I couldn't help but think maybe Phil Wickham, as you penned that song, was writing that based around Isaiah 61. And the message that, that, the, that this messenger was going to do and proclaim. And here's the tie-in, okay? So here in Isaiah, the proclamation is for the captives to be set free. What is Jesus proclaiming according to Mark? The same thing right? That there would be freedom and, and, and forgiveness of sin. And the hope of the gospel, what Jesus brings to us, is really founded out uh, from Isaiah 61. And so what we get here, let's, let me finish reading this. Um, let's pick back up in, in uh, verse 2. He says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of, of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Don't you love that picture? That this is what this mediator is proclaiming. He is going to, to bring, set the captives free. He's going to transform everything about those who follow him. And I think Mark is picking up on that same idea through the use of that word. So go back to Mark chapter 1. What, what we read is he's proclaiming, verse 14, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, now listen to these things. The time is fulfilled. Doesn't that sound exactly like Isaiah 61? About the time has come and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What the basis, therefore, for what Jesus proclaims is founded in the Old Testament upon who he is as that mediator, the one who will bring the message of hope to us. So if you go back and look at other passages in Isaiah, you can see that picture of the suffering servant who's going to proclaim all of these things for us. The hope that Jesus brings is incredible. I love this, this part, and, and we get this again in, in verse um, 15, and I'm going to go back here and try to tie this together real quick. In verse 15, we see that the, that the message is, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. And so... Uh, in, in verse 2 of Isaiah 61, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So that idea of the year of the Lord, you hear that? It's the time that's fulfilled. The year of the Lord has come. You hear how Mark's tying these things together beautifully, pointing to us, to Jesus, the hope of the gospel. And in this, the idea is that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's, it's that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is present. What does that really mean? So if you look back and think about what the, the Jews were wanting in the Old Testament, they wanted God to restore his kingdom. They had this concept of God as king. And it's actually part of their struggle because when they uh, established Saul or they wanted Saul to be king, they did that because what? 
every other king or every other nation had a physical king. And the Lord told them what? Don't do it. He, he like told them, don't fall prey to that because he was the sovereign king already. But they wanted that earthly king and it led them in a path of destruction and trials and suffering. But God is saying, my kingdom is better than any earthly kingdom. And Jesus is the one who ushers that kingdom in. And, that, and so here's part of this. Es establishing Jesus as divine because the kingdom of God is the one that uh, elevates him as the creator. It elevates him as the one who is exalted above all crea creatures. He is the one who rules in majestic splendor. He is superior to every false god and, and or idol, and he brings any other kingdom down. And so Mark, at the very beginning of the gospel, saying, Jesus has brought the year of the Lord. He's brought us a kingdom that is the kingdom of God that satisfies us beyond any other kingdom. It's not an earthly kingdom. It's a heavenly kingdom that is the kingdom of hope. So, what do we learn? We learn Jesus is the one who proclaims. His message is sure. The basis is that he is divine. He is the one that satisfies. He is the one who's promised. He ushers in this new kingdom. And he is the divine mediator responsible for providing. And I love this. Let's go back to verse 15. He says, repent. Well, what does repenting point to? The need for forgiveness of sin. Jesus alone is the one that can provide forgiveness of our sin and establish a new work in us. That's the hope of the gospel. That's the hope of who Jesus is. And, it's, and he is the greatest hope for humanity. So what are the implications? So we, we've seen the message. We see the basis that Jesus is divine, that he is the promised Messiah, the, the messenger out of Isaiah 61, who's bringing the kingdom in his time, the perfect time of the Lord, but what are the implications? Well, the implications are very practical, and they're also very personal. So this is an interesting point. So as Jesus has talked here about bringing in the kingdom of God, we need to remember this fact. The kingdom of God is often hidden to those who don't know the Lord. That, that needs to like weigh on us for just a moment. Because we can look around and a lot of things that happen in culture and context for us, and even in the time of Christ, even with him present, people did not fully understand what his kingdom was about. And so there's this aspect that's hidden. What does that mean for us in relationship with folks that the kingdom is hidden to? We need to be patient with them. We need to bear with them. We, we also need to reflect and understand that because they don't understand those things, they may not transition to the understanding of the kingdom. And, and so I, I would use this phrase to remind us of this, like lost people are going to act lost. So we can't expect everyone to, to just jump on board with our faith. And, and so people may be struggling to understand the truth of Christ. So what does that also mean for us? We need to have a burden to pray for their conversion. We need to have a hope uh, our conversations with them about the hope of who Christ is. Because if we don't present the, the truth of who Christ is, how will they ever know? So this is where I think it's so important for us to understand these kind of truths that Mark is revealing about the person of Jesus so that we can present the reason for the hope that we possess. 
So, so as we remember what I shared last week, maybe you're here and you feel like, man, this is basic stuff. The truth is, as we focus back on the basics, it ought to give us confidence, even if we're mature, to, to be more bold and confident and able to share our faith with those that don't know Christ, to see them respond to the call to do what, exactly what Jesus calls them to do, to what? Repent and believe. It, that, that's where our, our, uh, our responsibility is. We don't have to convince them. It's the Holy Spirit that does that. But we need to present those truths to people that don't know Christ so that they can come to a place where they're confronted in the, a proper way, not a negative way, in a positive way, with the hope of Jesus and the gospel and the promise of, of salvation through him so that they would repent and believe. We are the, the mouthpiece for the Lord. It's a tremendous responsibility, and it's a good responsibility. So that's a, a, both a practical uh, application. It's also very personal. And let me uh, reveal this. So at one time, you may re remember in your own life, the gospel was hidden to you as well. And so it's through someone sharing the, the good news of Jesus that the veil began to lift, if you will, that, that the light began to shine. Your heart began to be transformed by the work of the Spirit. And the scales fell off your eyes, so to speak. And the truth and the hope of the gospel became real. And you trusted in Him. And there was repentance and there was belief. We need to share those things. Uh, now, this is also paramount, I think. And, and I mentioned this already, but I want to make this clear. When Jesus talks about what it means to repent and believe, I think that as scholars have, uh, that I've read talked about this, even though the order is repent first and believe, the basis for repentance begins with belief. I think it's just a coupling there. We don't need to think that those are necessarily specific order, that you repent first and then believe. Really, belief comes first, that we trust Christ. Um, what does it mean to trust Christ? It means this, that we surrender our lives to his lordship. That, that we recognize that he is the only one, by his work, trusting in the grace of God, that's worked out on our behalf, we re recognize that we are sinners and we trust the work of Christ for our salvation. He is the one who has made the way. He has atoned for our sin. I can't do anything to atone for my sin. It's Jesus himself who has done that. So by believing in his work, trusting in him, and repenting of my sin and turning towards him, that is the, the, the point of salvation, where our hearts are regenerated. And I, I've shared this with a bunch of folks lately, and I want to bring this up really quickly. There's been uh, this, like, I think it's called, what I would call cheap grace. A lot of people will talk about what it means to be saved and saved from something. Like, and specifically, I'm saved from punishment. I'm saved from the consequences of my sin. I'm saved from hell. Well, that's all true. But repentance speaks much more than just salvation, uh, uh, speaks much more about uh, the hope of following Christ than just being saved from something. So, so I'm giving, my, my hands are up from this picture because a lot of times we go, I don't want those things that sin produces. I don't want the negative consequences. And we hold out our hands and, and resist thinking, oh, I, I, I followed Christ in this sense of I've been saved, but I've not really repented. I've just been saved from something. Repentance means like I'm saved from hell. I'm saved from those things. Repentance means turning and getting our attention onto Christ and following him. And I think that's why Jesus here couples these two words, repent and believe. 
Because believing is much more about following Christ. And that's what we see. Look, look at what happens next in the text. Verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And you can keep seeing this idea. By the way, as you're reading through the gospel, I, I started underlining this. The word immediately occurs again and again and again throughout this gospel. It's interesting. I, as, I would encourage you, mark that down. There's something about Mark, I think the way he writes in a short way, but he also emphasizes that immediate obedience to the Lord. And, and so here, what we see is, the, the context tells us Jesus said, repent and believe, and then the immediate thing he does is he calls the disciples to follow him, and immediately they follow. It's not like they said, well, we'll lay our fishing nets down, and we'll sit here on the, the shore, or we'll sit on our boat, and we're just going to kind of watch and wait and think through what it means to really not be a fisherman anymore. They lay that stuff down, and they immediately went and followed him. I don't think it's any coincidence that Mark paints that picture in context, that repenting is not just about resisting or, or, or avoiding those things that are negative, consequences of sin, hell, on and on. It's about following Jesus immediately, turning and having your eyes focused on him, trusting in him. So, those are the practical implications. Now I want to give you a, kind of a, a direction and response this morning. How is it that we respond to Jesus? Here's one of the first things that I, I thought, and I want to give you a quote here in a second. Do we doubt the hope of the promises that we are to consider? D does that make sense? I think a lot of people hear a message like this about trusting Jesus, following him, hearing the hope of the gospel, but then they go, well, I've got all these doubts still. In, in some of my other preparation for papers that I'm writing, I came across this statement by Spurgeon, by Charles Spurgeon. I want to read this because it's, it's short and it's so brilliant. He asked this question, what has doubt achieved? He goes on, how is it that no such trophy has ever been raised to the honor of unbelief? I, that just arrested my attention. Does it make you pause? Like, what has doubt ever achieved? A great question. Do we ever say, man, they're great at doubting, give them some kind of reward? We do the exact opposite, don't we? When people are courageous, when they take a risk, when they've weighed the cost and done, done something heroic, no, no matter maybe even how small it is, like even if somebody's just been kind to someone, like you notice like a, a student in the lunchroom, be kind to a fellow classmate. It's like people champion those things. But we don't look around and go, man, they're great at doubting things. Give them, give them an award. He goes on to say this. The fact is that doubt is negative, destructive, sterile. It constrains no man to nobler things. Whew. I was like, that's a great quote. Doubt constrains us to no nobler things. Folks, I want to encourage you with this thought. Wherever you are in your walk with Jesus, will you learn to put doubt aside and to follow through in trust and faith, to work out trusting in Jesus in the Word because He is 
proven again and again that he is that perfect mediator who brings the message of hope, the gospel of good news that sinners can be redeemed and those of us who are already redeemed can walk in a right way with him as we follow hard after him. There's going to be doubt. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that, that we're not going to wrestle with doubt, but don't let doubt be what defines you. Let trust and faith in Jesus Repenting and believing in him being what defines you. Because if you will pursue that in your life, the reward of falling Christ will be great. And that's what we sang about all morning. It's the hope of heaven. It's being face to face with him. It's that beatific vision that we will be seeing Jesus face to face once he calls us to heaven. What a great picture. That's the reward of the gospel. That's what ought to motivate us to repent and believe, trusting in Christ. It's very, very practical. It leads us into so many areas of obedience. So don't let doubt win. Will we be people who trust Christ well? So here's what I want to ask you to do. I just want you to pray this morning. And here's how I want you to, to pray. Pray, Lord, what is it that about Jesus that I need to be growing in an awareness of? How can I grow in trust more and more of him each day? That's just a simple prayer that all of us need to pray. So I want you to just bow your head, listen to the Lord, think through the message, and pray that prayer. And then do this. Commit to say, Lord, I'm going to begin to do this one thing, to put my hope in you and trust you more on a daily basis. So that's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for Jesus. Jesus, I thank you that he is the gospel, the hope that you've promised to us. The, the one who sets the captives free. That he came in the perfect time to redeem us. To forgive our sin. To pay the sacrifice, to atone, that's what that means. To pay the sacrifice and penalty for our sin that we might have forgiveness. Lord, the call is for us to repent and believe. And that is not just to start our life with Christ. That goes on as a daily work. But the enemy wants to create doubt within us. He wants to, to cause us to, to, to be concerned and trip us up with sin and other things. But your call is for us to hope in Jesus. So I pray, Lord, in the next quiet 30 seconds that each of us would, would pray to you and, and discern through the work of your Spirit where we may struggle to follow you hard and, and well, and how we can correct that, course correct and right the ship, so to speak, so that we trust you well and we find the hope that the gospel is in our lives. So I'm going to be quiet and let you do business with the Lord individually. Heavenly Father, it's so good to be in your presence, to think about Jesus making the right way for us for him being a mediator, for the Holy Spirit as well being a mediator on our behalf. And Lord, as we come to you today, there, there's so many issues that I'm sure that all of us are facing in life, but I do want to lift up three uh, particular families this morning as we move towards the end of our service. And the first is Russ and Kelly Douglas. Lord, we just pray that, that what you're doing uh, right now in Russ's life and Kelly's life, Lord, that you would go before them, that you give his body physical strength 
as he's dealing with cancer and uh, all the treatments that, that um, go along with that with the chemotherapy and the other tests that he's going to undergo this week. Lord, I know that as he talked to me about those things, he's got a good handle on that stuff medically, um, and he's anticipating some physical response. But Lord, even before he goes through those procedures, we pray that you give him strength and healing to endure those things. We pray that his recovery would go well. We pray for the doctors and the nurses and, and all those that are giving him care, that you would go before them, help them to, to keep everything right procedurally before them, to follow through on the details, and uh, that you would just continue to, to work in his, his body physically. Lord, as we've talked, I, I just continue to, to give uh, you glory for the faith that he and Kelly possess. For they know that uh, they are yours and, and you are theirs. And uh, Lord, it's, it's been a sweet journey with them through this time. Lord, we do pray for your will to be done in his life in the healing process. Um, so Father, uh, we submit them to you. Uh, Lord, be their sustainer. Be their rock and fortress in this season. Lord, we pray for the, the Binkleys, for Brad and Bonnie, and, and then also uh, Dusty and, and Braden um, Appleton, and uh, just all the things that Brad is undergoing. Lord, we, we thank you for the progress that he's making. Lord, there's a long way for him to go. We pray for all those occupational therapists that are working with him, other nurses and caregivers as well. Lord, um, we thank you that even in the midst of kind of a setback this week, you gave Bonnie wisdom and discernment to ask about certain meds that were uh, in conflict with his body, and they got that remedied really quickly, and, and he's rebounding and, and making some more strides. Lord, we, we thank you for those that worked on their house this weekend just to provide a, a, a necessary means for him to enter in through that ramp. Lord, um, thank you for the sacrifice of those guys and their skills. Um, Father, we pray that, that you would work in Brad physically. We pray that you keep him... Um, just motivated to work hard in this recovery process. Uh, Lord, we, we also pray for Bonnie and, and other caregivers like Braden who are trading out hospital time and visits and trying to learn um, certain techniques and, and steps that will be required of them as uh, Brad moves home. Give them strength, give them wisdom. Uh, Lord, we pray now for Mason and Riley. Um, Lord, as they look forward to just a, a short week from now uh, being before their family and friends, uh, sharing their, their vows to one another and honoring you with their commitment to marriage. Uh, we, we just ask that it would be a really sweet time with, with one another and those guests there. I, I pray that even as they begin to prepare for the travel and enter into that season as well over their honeymoon, that you go before them and keep flights arranged rightly, help them to make sure they navigate hotels well, but especially let them enjoy uh, the country and just one another in, in their, their new um, just oneness together as a married couple. And we, we pray that you would bless them and that this would just set them apart for their future to be um, just... Uh, have a thriving marriage. And Lord, as they come back to us, we, we look forward to celebrating with them all the, the wonderful things that they got to experience. Um, Father, as we now get ready to do a reprise of the morning, I pray that you would uh, use this even short song to, for us to, to reflect our love for you, our praise for you, and the hope that we have uh, in, in our relationship with you as uh, we trust in you with the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. We bless you and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.